Welcome, everybody. Um, by way of introduction, I'm Emily Jones, the Acting Deputy Director at the Global Economic Governance Programme. Um, welcome to our seminar, which is co-hosted with the Blavatnik School of Government. Just a bit of housekeeping to note that today we're all, we're all being recorded. We had two clashes with other events on uh, civil conflict, and we've been requested that we have a podcast. Um, so the speakers have kindly consented to that. So we're all, we're all here, so to speak. So today's panel is on civil conflict in the current era. New patterns are the same old. And a couple of questions that we thought would be interesting for our speakers to uh, reflect on, I'm sure they'll have others. Has there been, as many have argued, a precipitous decline in civil conflicts during, civil conflicts during the past decade? What are the underlying drivers of civil conflict in the current era? And do they differ from previous eras? So how? And then think, drawing from this analysis and the empirical side, what does that mean for policy ramifications, both at the national and international level? And I'm really pleased to introduce three fabulous speakers, um, all based in Oxford now. First, um, Monica Duffy-Toff, um, Professor of Government and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government. Professor Toff was previously at Harvard, uh, the Kennedy School of Government, for 10 years. And she also spent four years in, in the United States Army as a Russian linguist. Her recent books include Population Change and National Security and Rethinking Religion and World Affairs. And she's also co-author of a, a widely acclaimed book, the author, sorry, the uh, God Century, right? Mm -hmm. The Resurgent Religion in Global Politics, which I'm sure many of us are familiar with. The next to speak will be Dr. Anka Hofler. She's at the Center for the Study of African Economies uh, in the Economics Department. And she's published widely on economic growth and the economics of conflict. Um, and particularly your work on, uh, I know, reading grievance and the drivers of civil conflict, and more recently on the sort of the fundamental um, preconditions um, of conflict. Um, she's got two forthcoming papers with Robert Bates and Gaia Fayad on the state of democracy in Africa and the new institutionalism in Africa. And then, least but not last, oh, sorry, last but not least, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> International relations here in Oxford. His principal research interests are on international organizations and conflict management, and his current research is focused on post conflict state building. And you have a new book out, right, Richard? Which is here last month, is that edited volume? Which is looking, which is exit strategies and state building, and looking at the how well uh, the exit strategies of, of uh, and how international actors exit from post conflict situations. And um, so without further ado, I'll hand over to Monica. Okay, great. And, and then I suggest we all sit down here so we can have So thank you, Emily, for inviting me. This is a real pleasure to be able to present with um, Alka and Rich on this topic, which is a topic I've been working on, I hate to admit this, for 20 years. Um, and um, I am trained as an international relations scholar, so part of the talk I'm going to run through the, the, the field of the study of armed conflict as a general field of study is actually relatively new. Uh, most people studied civil wars, and when we're talking about armed conflict, and I'm going to give you a definition that a lot of scholars work with, we're talking about violence that's happening within states. So there were lots of scholars, international relations scholars, that were doing systematic patterns of interstate conflicts, that's two states clashing up against one another. But the systematic study of civil wars and whether we could glean generalizations across different civil wars, 
uh, is actually relatively new. It's only emerged in the last 20 years and pretty much since the end of the Cold War. And what happened was you had sort of the end of the bipolar rivalry, nuclear weapons, you know, sort of a downsizing of nuclear arsenals, Ukraine and Kazakhstan giving up its weapon systems. Um, and you had IR scholars all of a sudden sort of the, the, the bailiwick of their, their business, the you know, Cold War uh, US-Soviet relations, um, was, was pretty much done and defunct. And then all of a sudden you had wars popping up in Europe. And so you had scholars and comparative politics people, they would tend to be very regionally focused. And if they studied civil wars at, at, at all, it would be because they studied Uganda. And they studied what happened in Uganda. And Uganda happened to have a civil war. So there wasn't this general sense that we could discern patterns across different civil wars. There were data sets. There was the cow data set, the correlates of war data set. I don't know if any of you have worked with that. But it was pretty much uh, an interstate war data set. They did have civil wars in there, but it seemed to have been an afterthought. And in fact, many civil wars, they sort of discounted them as to be included in the data set because they were sort of biased in how they were sort of coding things. Um, so the field is relatively new, um, and so much so, actually, uh, that there aren't as many generalizations as we would like as there are for people who study interstate wars. But they are there. And actually, Anka and Paul Collier were some of the early, you know, um, was it, uh, how do you say this? Uh, out there first, uh, the pioneers, that's the term I'm looking for, the pioneers in doing this systematic work at the World Bank. And I remember being a graduate student, a locally graduate student, um, at the University of Chicago reading the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you remember this, Anka. And they did a front page cover, the Wall Street Journal, about how the World Bank, through this research institute, and Anka and Paul wrote this very important article about greed and grievance in civil wars. Um, it was first a working paper, and then, did you guys ever get that published? It's probably the most cited working paper, right? It took five years. Yeah, it took five years. Don't give up if yeah. you didn't succeed. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is that, and, 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 and this led to sort of, I don't want to, and I'm not diminishing the worth of it, a little bit of perversions in the field as it went forward, because you have the World Bank economic focus, state focus, top down, in the systematic study of civil wars. Um, we do have some important generalizations, and people are now accepting them, um, but there are still some biases. I'm going to go through a couple of them at the end, because it will be fun for us to discuss them and how they work, especially given Rich's new book on exit strategies and how, state, how to build states after the end of a war. So what counts as a civil war? We're talking about violence within states, so it's within the internationally recognized borders of states. This is what most scholars, most researchers begin with. So you could say, but what about Yugoslavia, Croatia? Um, 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 Macedonia, they're all now independent states. Well, at the start of that conflict, they were, they were internationally um, recognized as parts of former Yugoslavia. The focus of control is over who is going to govern the state. Right? So it can't be this sort of spontaneous stuff. We can think about the 1997 Albanian riots, the pyramid schemes that collapsed. Uh, most people do not include those into their data set. Uh, there has to be at least two groups of organized combatants. Again, you can't have this spontaneity. Um, the state is typically one of the combatants, although some scholars, some researchers will look at communal conflicts where the state is an outside arbiter. So you think about Azerbaijan and Armenia initially. Moscow came in later and started sort of taking sides. Uh, and then where there's some disagreement is on the magnitude of the violence. So some scholars think that you just need a total of a thousand battle deaths 
And actually, the data I'm going to show you from the Uppsala uh, Prio group, the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, they have one of the best. It's considered the gold standard data set at this point because um, they update it regularly. A lot of people have vetted it. Uh, they go down to excuse me, 25 battle deaths, but they will call it, they call that actually a smaller scale conflict. If you're lo talking about large scale conflict, which is where my work is, um, it's usually somewhere around 1,000, which seems an odd number. But again, this is an artifact of the correlates of war data set, that when scholars started putting together data sets, correlates of war used 1,000. So guess what? Civil War scholars started using 1,000. And there's variation. And then the question is, is it total? Is it on average? Uh, uh, per average year of the war, that sort of thing. And critically, the strong side has to have separate casualties as well. Otherwise, we're in massacre and genocide land, which happens during civil wars, but they really are sort of a different kind of conflict. Uh, genocide studies, by the way, now, and massacre studies, similar sort of trajectory as civil wars or sub-state armed conflict, in that people are now systematically studying genocides and massacres and believe that they can come up with generalizations across history and then importantly across space. Um, so the differences, interstate versus civil wars, again, the field did sort of discounted civil wars. They're epiphenomenal, right? They're just too complicated. We're not going to study those. And if you're going to study, you're going to be an expert on Columbia and then, and then the Colombian Civil War. Uh, part of it is, is that there's more than if you want to think about ethnic groups or religious groups or linguistic groups, how societies divide themselves. We talk about cleavages within societies. You could say there's a minimum of at least 10,000 groups, and that's linguistic groups. Um, and given that, it's too hard to say. It's sort of like comparing apples and oranges. And other scholars came along and said, no, no, it really is. It's Mandarin oranges and clementines. There is something there that they share. Uh, you, just be, you just have to be attuned to it. And then when you start doing your analysis, you need to be careful about controlling for certain things. But yes, there are lots and lots of cleavages in identity and, and, and uh, political divisions, ideological divisions within society. But they're not so grave that they can't prevent us from studying them across um, uh, different countries and, and, and time spans. Uh, the other argument that was made for why you couldn't do this in the early days was that the nature of the combatants, so they weren't organized in civil wars, right? But it turns out that in most civil wars, you've got highly structured uh, combat forces. So I've, I've done a lot of work on the Caucasus and, the che and Chechnya. You know, there's uniforms, there's ranks, there's units, there's commanders of units. So this idea that it's guerrillas and irregular forces fighting a you know, hierarchical government force is just false. In some cases, it's true, but not in all cases. Uh, in fact, you usually get a mixture of both irregular forces, uh, and they tend to be the, the special forces for the insurgents, and then regular forces that have this chain of command that we would recognize as being a regular armed force. Uh, the other sort of belief or, or supposition was that um, uh, civil wars did not happen in the modern Western, developed, whatever term we want to use. And whenever I, I put this up, I, is anybody from Australia or New Zealand? They get offended. They're like, we don't have any civil wars. Um, well, anyway, but the, but, but, and, but the truth is, is that actually a lot of civil wars have happened, or the, the vast majority have happened south of the equator, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, and actually, Asia, and I'll show you a regional map, has the most, proportionally speaking, relative to the number of states, has the most civil wars. We have to remember, Africa has a lot of states. Um, so that's why you see a lot of wars there. And then the consequences. This turns out to be true. Uh, civil wars are really nasty. I started my second book with the civil wars are nasty, brutish, and long. They tend to last long. The average interstate war only lasts about three months. 
So it, it, you know, it flares up and it dies down. The average civil war, I'm going to show you some data, it lasts about seven years. So from an international policy perspective, we really don't want civil wars to break out because um, they're, they're, they last much longer. And they tend to be much more deadly on average. So I think since World War II, I, I don't want to give you the false numbers, but it's something like 3 million people have died from, from interstate wars, and it's like tenfold or fifteenfold number of people who have died from civil wars. And that's a restrictive um, figure. That's not including famines and droughts that are a result from um, state instability and, and breakdown. So this is, again, UCDP. This is a joint endeavor. It used to not be united. So again, the field is evolving. There used to be two different data sets. Ursula had its own, and the Peace Research Institute group had their own. It now united. It's a collaborative effort. Um, and it, again, it's considered one of the gold standard uh, data sets. And what's nice is they're actually now starting to really work on sub-state level data. And I'll explain why that's important in a second. And you can see that uh, civil wars or armed conflicts, intrastate wars, are the vast majority of the kinds of large, large armed conflict. I used to joke when I taught at the Kennedy School, you know, I'm teaching with Joe Nye, brilliant, Steve Walt, brilliant, um, Graham Allison, Ash Carter, all these IR scholars who do big bombs and bullets. And I would get up there as a junior faculty member and say, you want to understand violence in the world today? Take my class. <laughs> and that's the reason. I mean, most of the violence that we're seeing today is happening within states. Um, and it's usually states on their populations. Um, and, you know, one of the questions we're answering here today is, we're supposed to answer is whether there's been a precipitous decline. And I have to say the Arab Spring has thrown, the people were making this case from 2000 to 20, from 1990, and I'll show you the data, you can see it here, there was a real peak an increase, this is uh, across regions, a real peak and increase in sub-state violence, and then it dipped as these conflicts were negotiated. Um, and I think we're just going to get into that, that the, the real push to negotiate settlements during the 1990s. Uh, but now there seems to be an uptick again in the number of conflicts um, as a result of the So we can think about Bahrain, uh, Syria, um, and then some other conflicts that have sort of spiked up. Uh, on average, there's about 22 armed conflicts that begin each decade. Uh, and then 2000 to 2010, I think the, it was only 15 started. Uh, but we're only two years into 2010 to 2020, and we're already seeing conflicts. Uh, here you can see Africa does have a lar large number of the conflicts, Europe less so. Latin America, Latin America hasn't had a lot uh, these days, in part because it's really striking. When you look at the type of conflicts, whether they're class-based or identity-based, today the big, big things, identity-based conflicts, half of all ongoing conflicts today have a religious tint to them, meaning people are fighting um, over religious beliefs or ideals or because they abide by a different faith. Um, uh, whereas in Latin America, most, most of the conflicts, there's some exceptions, Guatemala, uh, it was over class-based issues, so Colombia, to think about, uh, which now Colombia has really become a war unto itself. Um, there's sort of a war economy that's driving it. Um, this is current conflicts, this is 20, 2011, 37. Now again, uh, the UCDP, this includes conflicts with 25 deaths. It's not the thousand, but you can see there's seven uh, really intense conflicts in Iraq, um, that sort of thing. So it's still out there. Uh, there does seem to have been a decline, but I think it's too soon for us to say that it's a precipitous decline because, of course, we're only two years in and we don't have... You know, one of the weird things about working in this field is we need to wait for more data. 
right? And so we, people say, well, what does the world look like? And I, well, I need a little bit more time to make some pro uh, predictions or, or propositions. And then here you can see that the proportion of armed conflict dyads has dropped, but it's peaking again. It's going back up um, uh, as a result. And, and, and some of this is because of what's happening in the Middle East. All right, so basic facts about civil wars, I already told you, they la they're long. They last on an average of seven years. They tend not to recur. This is really good news, that once a civil war ends, it tends not to recur. Prior to the 1990s, most civil wars ended by military victory. Upwards of 85% ended by military victory. One side prevailed over another. And there was a lot of Cold War politics happening. You think about Ethiopia, Angola, uh, where you had the Soviet Union and the United States sort of uh, backing, or their proxies, Cuba and Angola, for instance, backing. Um, and then in the 1990s, there was a real push. Again, the end of the, the bipolar era, the UN became a more formidable entity. You didn't have as much infighting in the Security Council. And there was a real push internationally uh, to, to settle wars through negotiation. On top of that, in very practical terms, many of the combatants could no longer get arms and resources uh, by playing off the bipolar sides. So El Salvador is a case that ended precisely because the FMLN and the government could no longer curry favor with their respective um, uh, arms suppliers. Uh, that hasn't totally ended. The reason why Sri Lanka was able to prevail over the Tamil Tigers is they got arms from China. The government made a real commitment. Um, that war ended in 2009, was it? And a year, I think that's, is that when they marched in 2009 with the final offensive, where they literally pushed the Tamils to the beach? And then it's our last real decisive victory. Of course, Assad's trying to achieve that in Syria. And we'll see whether the international community allows that to happen. But the point is, is that the government was able to go to China and get arms and refashion some of its military so that it could defeat the Tamil Tigers. And I just wrote, read a great piece in today's FT about how the Tamils are now making bras instead of bombs. Um, and why this matters is that uh, in the 1990s, negotiated settlements really became the favored type of termination to the end of civil wars. And people sort of became, if you talked about military victory as a possibility, and I wrote a book on this and got really hammered by some people, not everybody, um, they felt that you were advocating greater violence. But it turns out that those, many of those victories stuck, that they had a lot of staying power. And it makes sense. I mean, one side's disarmed. They're not necessarily destroyed. In most cases, they're just disarmed. Uh, they kill between 91,000 and 187,000 people. That's a lot of people. When some of these conflicts are in tiny little places, right, uh, with small populations, they tend to occur in poor resource-dependent countries. And this is really the work of Paul and Anka, um, that, they're, that they really pulled this out, that it's these poor resource-dependent countries. And then in non-democratic countries. And so I'm going to talk about the non-democratic uh, for a second. The, on the poor resource-dependent side, we don't know how resources feed in, we just know they're bad. So we understand that rebels are probably not going to develop an oil industry, but we understand that because of the government's skewed economic system and corruption and rent seeking and all of that sort of thing, there's something about resource dependent. And they're, they're actually, in those kinds of states, are more susceptible to the contingencies of the international trade system that there's a higher risk for those countries to go to war. It's indirect effect. Uh, poverty, it turns out, I, mean, Anka, I think you guys found it was like 2,300 GDP per capita. Um, puts a, if, if you can get a population above, it, it, some people have said 1,900, but between 1,900 and $2,300 per capita, 
the, the risk ratio of going to war in a given year uh, goes down quite a bit. Um, and then non-democratic countries. And, but it's not, what's it, really critical when you think about non-democratic, so there's not going to have, the United States is not going to be susceptible um, to it. I mean, this is, we're talking about probabilities here. Um, but it turns out that autocratic countries are less susceptible to civil war. It's these in-between, we talk about in the city, we talk about democracies versus autocracies. But in the middle, and it's a fat middle, by the way, and it's an increasing middle, um, which is good because there are fewer autocracies, and actually there are more democracies, but that fat middle, is, they're called democracies, and we talk about transitioning to democracy. These are the risk states. So if you think about Iraq, uh, Iraq actually prior to 2003, the American invasion of Iraq, was really highly autocratic. Saddam Hussein had a tight grip on the place. Now, we don't even know where Iraq is, although I think people would probably be coding it like a one or a two. Um, Egypt uh, was, under Mubarak, fairly safe. The military had control, he had control of the security forces, that sort of thing. The worrisome ones are uh, Cambodia, Venezuela. In order to score a democracy, you have to get at least a six. So it's those sort of negative threes up to a three, where there's enough political openness, but typically it's not fully open because the institutions are not as robust as they should be in order to allow for politics to sort of play themselves out with any sort of assurance for both sides that if they lose an election or if they give way on a particular policy, that the other side will do so later down the road. And so when we're fashioning, and I think you're going to be talking a lot about this from your new book, you need to be thinking about these sort of political dynamics. But the point is, is this sort of fat middle of these anocracies that are the most risk-prone toward uh, moving into civil war. Uh, the main causes of civil wars, um, uh, the security dilemma. And you know, I'm not going to make a really crass argument that it's ancient hatreds or uh, when I talk about fear and geography, I'm talking about deep history and culture. Right. In 1848, the Serbs and the Croats were fighting with one another. The Croats feared Serb domination. This has played itself out. It played itself out in the Balkan Wars. It played itself out in World War II. And so one of the things is, is that um, you really need, when you're looking at states and you're really studying these cases, you really want to be respectful of history and sort of the relationships and how the narratives were and how they continue to be reconstructed. And there are slight changes in the margins, um, but there are deep histories in many of these countries. This leads to grievances when you have societies that are cleaved, and if one group or one, one uh, set of interests control, um, and then there's a sense that one group isn't getting what it feels it deserves, however it defines it. Again, you need to read the stories and read what they're saying. Um, then, then, then you're more likely. Greed and resources, so oil and diamonds. Again, we know diamonds are bad, actually, in a particular kind of diamond, alluvial diamonds. And it turns out that in many of the wars in Africa, um, uh, it's because these could literally be picked out of the riverbeds. Deep shaft mine diamonds, you need infrastructure, and the census is that David King has done some good work on this, and so has Michael Ross, if anybody wants. Michael's done a tease, his book is terrific on the oil side of this. Um, that uh, usually these are not causes of war, but if they're there in place, they lead to the perpetuation of the war. They become part of this war economy that we're talking about. Um, and then elites and thugs. They're a necessary condition, but they're not sufficient. So I do a lot of work on nationalism, and a lot of people you know, would say, well, Monica, you know, Milosevic was a thug. He just duped his population. And I just looked at it and said, that is so disrespectful of the population of Serbia. He tapped into a raw nerve. Serbs really were nervous about 
Kosovo and Kosovo Albanians and that sort of thing. Yes, he was a bit of a thug, I'm not denying that, but he was also a nationalist, and he was telling a narrative that had some resonance with the population, right? And so this idea that it's always top-down is just not true, right? That it actually can be bottom-up and groundswell. Uh, but you do need elites, you need leaders up there um, doing this. So the literature has evolved. When they first started, we didn't differentiate between different kinds of wars. It was civil wars or not. Um, and then with the wars in Yugoslavia, people started talking about ethnicity and identity and that sort of thing. Um, Nick Sambanis, Nicholas Sambanis, is a scholar at Yale. He worked at the UN for a while. Did this terrific piece trying to differentiate because people were not. They were doing crass or gross. It's not crass. Gross assessments of civil wars and saying, is there something different about identity uh, versus non-identity civil wars? Um, and it tends that, 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 that there is a difference. It tend, identity civil wars tend to last a little bit longer, uh, and they're a little bit more difficult, and particularly religious civil wars are more difficult to negotiate and end. And this notion of the security dilemma, this fear, so neither side wants to go to war, but there's a fear that if one triumphs over another, they're going to somehow get screwed down the line in the system. Uh, Non-identity wars tend to involve ideology, you think about communism, Baathism, that sort of thing. Stuff about how the economy should regulate itself. Or straight out greed. I mean, I think you read enough about Charles Taylor. This was a thug. I mean, he was. He was setting up and trying to maintain um, uh, his coterie, his network of people in power. And so 14 uh, different negotiated settlements. This was a guy that you know, was using negotiated settlements in order to rearm and come back at a later time. Uh, so the characteristics of identity-based civil wars, so they last a little bit longer, they kill a slightly higher number of people. They're the most likely types of civil wars to recur. Um, and um, in my first book, I looked at sort of the concentration versus dispersion of groups because there were debates in the literature. And it turns out that you have to have territorial concentrated populations in order for them to sort of make claims on the state. Um, and uh, when they end in negotiated settlements, they tend to break down down the road. Uh, so territory is a critical thing. And again, it comes back to history and culture and homelands. Uh, and you really want to take that seriously uh, when you're sort of researching this stuff. Um, and uh, so an artifact that the data, especially the early data, was that it tended to underplay identity. And the reason for this was a lot of the data were aggregate state level data, GDP per capita population size. So you weren't looking at, okay, what is the relative status of Chechens to Russians, right? You were looking at Russia's GDP per capita, so you were completely missing the dynamics that were happening in the Caucasus. So we were missing those very important things. That's changing now, actually. There's all kinds of, we we're talking about the disaggregation of data, but we're trying to get a sense of what's happening in the localities. Why is it that North Congo is much more violent than other parts of Congo? Right, uh, that sort of thing. That that, that there, you think about there are many civil wars and many local grievances that need to be taken into account. But in the early days of civil war conflict, we didn't study that. Uh, you think about Iraq. The Bush administration had come to Ankara, I think. I don't know if they did Ankara, but she could have told them, "Don't go." Right? She's she and uh, and Paul discovered this indicator by GDP per capita. They were right at that cost. Right? Of uh, you know, not enough to bribe everybody to sit down. This is what Saudis do, Saudis make payments. Putin's quite nervous because he's reliant on oil. Um, but uh, governments do pay off their populations. Um, and so Iraq, it's highly, it was highly dependent on oil. 
so see there's some of the indicators we now understand it's cleaved along ethnic and sectarian lines that was bad societies that have that again the risk propensity goes up geographically populated right you've got the Kurds in the north you've got the Shia in the south and you have the Sunnis in the the west and the Shia and the Sunni the Kurds just want it they, ideally in a new world I think what they want is their own independent state they're not going to get it so they're smart they should sit tight so it was really over Baghdad, and who was going to control Baghdad, because Baghdad is the control of the resources, so you get the clash between the Shia and the Sunni. Um, and then the quality score. Prior, and this is, this is an obnoxious thing to say, but before it was a negative nine, which is highly autocratic, which is good. But from a, somebody who entered in security studies and international stability, you know, looking at that from that perspective, it's good. After 2003, we, uh, we, one of the reasons why the violence got so bad is you did not have in place a government that could take care and, and provide security and order for the population. Um, so biases in the Scottish mentality is data-driven, which is a good thing, by the way. I do statistics and everything. But one of the critical things, so if any of you are going to go into this, or if you're reading research, see how history and culture and identity are taken into account in the research. Uh, State-level uh, factors, and here I'm talking about GDP per capita, um, population, they tend to be static in the analyses, when a lot of times what's causing these civil wars are dynamic factors. So if you've got a bunch of static measures, indicators, you're not going to capture the dynamics that are actually leading to the violence. Um, and then normative concerns about violence, I'm going to be setting up rich here, um, that there really is a bias in the international community when they go to settle these kinds of conflicts. Uh, you don't talk about partition. It's just not talked about. There was a great debate in the <coughs> This was late 90s, Radha Kumar and Heim Kaufman about the pros and cons of partition. But when I teach this stuff, and Peter actually sat in a course on this, right? If partition doesn't happen, how did we move from about 40 states in 1940 to 197 today? Tell me, right? Um, so partition happens, and under certain circumstances, it may be good. Not all, but under certain. And then victory. Um, we usually don't talk about victory. I think actually that's slightly changing. Uh, I think Libya, the situation in Libya has helped. I think what the Sri Lankan government does with the Tamils, that might help. Um, but I have to tell you, in the 1990s and then into the, the, this century, the 21st century, uh, you could not really talk about victory. We're seen as beating up on the little guys, uh, that sort of thing. And then partition, you just you can't even mention partition. Uh, and, it, and the reason is, of course, that the international community is made up of states, most of whom are multinational, and they have their own secessionists that they're afraid, this, this idea of reputation and precedent, that they're quite nervous, uh, that if they allow for a partition and other, that, uh, parties within their um, borders and they press them for. So I'm going to, I think that was my last slide, I'm going to end it there. Thank you so much. So um, thank you very much, Monica, for this excellent introduction. Uh, Monica's done um, or I'll do peace. <laughs> so um, I'm going to sort of talk a little bit about um, what makes peace last and what we know so far about it and what, are, what I think the gaps in the, in the current research are, and I'll give you some suggestions for, for discussion. So you've seen this before, so this is the number of conflicts, and this is from the Second World War to today, and as Monica pointed out, um, in the early 1990s we had a peak, and since then we've been actually, despite all the bad news, a much more peaceful world. And that's what I want to concentrate on. Um, 
So I'm an economist by training. So uh, post-conflict challenges, um, I think you can roughly divide in economic recovery. You're really on your knees after a war ends. And then you want to reduce the risk of conflict recurrence. So one thing that I found particularly interesting in, in Monica's um, introduction was that she thinks recurrence isn't a big issue any longer. And I think you're right, you might be right about this, but I think until very recently, most conflicts, most civil wars have occurred in a country that has had civil conflict before. So Cote d'Ivoire in uh, 2000 um, was um, very unusual because it hadn't had a civil war before. Uh, and so um, most co uh, countries that have got civil war had civil war before. But we might be just sort of in a changing sort of era with Syria, Libya, and so on. Um, so, so far, I think, but as she also said, we might have to wait a little bit more for, for data to be sort of sure that there is a sort of change uh, in the situation. So if it's true that most countries that have had a civil, civil war are particularly high risk, so we sort of looked at it and found that about 40% of all countries that had a civil war have another civil war start-up within a decade of the peace, of peace breaking up of, 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 of an agreement. And as Monica said, country, so they can be in a conflict trap. So poor countries are more likely to have a civil war. Um, so once you've had a civil war, you're poor, you're likely to have a civil war and so on. So that, that's the sort of trap. And um, if, you're, if you think of um, fragile or failed states, um, why have they sort of failed? It's in two dimensions, really. It's they don't, what do states have to do? What do we expect from our state? It's security, and it's sort of opportunities to lift up, to have a meaningful economic life, so to lift ourselves out of poverty. So these are the two minimum um, things that I expect a state to do. And these two are, of course, connected. If, if I'm not secure, I can't go and earn a living, and if I can't earn a living, I might actually sort of consider joining a rebel force and fighting my, my government. But perhaps the policy instruments to stabilize economic recovery and bring this about and bring conflict reduction about are maybe different, even though these are sort of twin, twin challenges. So I just sort of want to give a little bit of an overview of what I think we know about interventions, what works and what doesn't. So peace is what I want to think about. So what does aid do, international aid? What do interventions do, diplomatic, military, and economic interventions? Peacekeeping operations and arms control. <coughs> These are the sort of um, things I can think about um, that have been studied in large-end studies. So this is my own work or work by other people. Um, but it's always sort of large-end, so cross-country, global um, studies that I'll, I'll be considering. So let me start with aid. Um, so there's quite clear evidence that aid does not prevent civil war. So just because you give aid to a country doesn't make it more prone to civil war, it doesn't um, make it a safer place either. Um, so that's, um, you can think of various um, theoretical reasons why that might be the case, um, um, why it might bring about peace or conflict. 
um, but the uh, empirical evidence is quite clear, aid does not prevent civil war. But does aid prevent um, recurrence? And um, the interesting thing is that after um, the conflict ends, so conflicts are obviously devastating for countries, and they shrink, everything shrinks in this country, and they bounce back. Yeah, so this is what I call the peace dividend. So they've got higher than average growth. Yeah, so that's on average, not every country, this is statistical results, on average countries bounce back. And interestingly, um, Monica's done this research, this peace dividend is in, independent of conflict termination. So conflicts can end in different ways, as she explained, the rebels can win, the government can win, um, you can have a negotiated settlement, or you can rumble on. And it seems that actually quite a lot of conflicts just rumble on at just lower scale. Um, and so the um, research that I've done is that aid actually manages to increase the growth rate after the conflicts ended. I say conflict and war interchangeably, but really what I've studied are large-scale um, armed conflicts, a thousand more dead countries. So aid increases this peace dividend. So this is a really, if you were to advise the World Bank, you would sort of say, and, and DFID or, or any other um, government um, development department, you would say, this is really good use of aid money. It sort of improves growth um, after the conflict. It does only do that, though, if you've got no rumbling on of lower scale conflict. Um, um, so you've got to make sure that there really is a peace, otherwise you are not um, getting the, um, the bank of the back that you're hoping for. And the, then the, one of the questions is, of course, is there a particular type of aid? Because I say aid. So aid is understood as anything other than military aid. Yeah? So this is from food aid to emergency aid to infrastructure, economic infrastructure, and, and um, um, schools, um, education, everything. And it's very interesting when I looked into this that aid to post-conflict countries seems to be very similar to any other um, developing country. And it doesn't seem to be the case that a particular type of aid stabilizes the peace, which was interesting to me because I just sort of thought there are cleavages in these societies and anything that sort of helps with reconciliation and the World Bank and the UN and so on have extra special programs for this should help. But there's very little evidence um, for that. Might be a data thing, maybe the data is not finely graded, it's sufficiently finely graded. Interventions. So you can intervene diplomatically, um, economically or um, militarily, and you can intervene pre-war or you can um, intervene in an ongoing war. And it's of course very difficult to sort of assess any of the pre-war interventions. Pat Regan and Ben Hamilton has done so nice, so far unpublished paper. So first of all, um, a lot of countries are, or there's a lot of effort, international effort now, into early warning. If only we know, then we can do something about it and stop it from happening. Because there's a really important thing, as Monica said there, long, um, and British, um, these wars. So let's stop them. But maybe early warning isn't only action. Um, the African Union has got an early warning system, but it's probably too early to assess this early warning system. They have had several interventions. What Pat Regan does, interestingly, is he looks at countries at risk, 
So you use the Goldstein uh, et al. data to sort of look at um, how risky these countries are at experiencing a war, and then sort of looks at the sort of different interventions that have happened, and looks at whether these interventions then um, gave these countries a lower probability of having a war, and he sort of says that on the whole, these interventions don't seem to, to work. Um, military interventions make it more likely, economic interventions the jury's out, and diplomatic interventions work. So that's maybe quite hopeful. But this is, uh, this is unpublished research as yet. And this, this is, I think, where a lot more action in research could, could be. Ongoing war uh, interventions tend to lengthen wars. So it seems to be really unclear how, you know, what, what to do once a conflict gets going, they're incredibly difficult to stop and they last for a long time. Um, civil wars, not international wars, we seem to have very good mechanisms to get the Ethiopians and the Eritreans to sit down after 30 days of war and after 30 years of war, civil war, we managed to sort of somehow stop this, yeah? Or it stopped, not we, but you know, it stopped. So um, it's unclear, I haven't seen research on this, which effect these different interventions have on uh, the type of termination. And as we've heard from Monica, this is really important. Yeah? So um, for military victories, this dirty word that is becoming a bit more acceptable, um, the peace lasts longer. So we should maybe spending more effort into thinking these things through. Peacekeepers, do they keep the peace? Lots of negative headlines about them, what goes on in Congo and other places. Um, um, do they keep the peace? So what I did, and other scholars as well, was to sort of have a look at um, um, the sort of duration of peace. These are statistical models. Um, so is this peace not likely, more likely to last if peacekeepers are there? This is UN peacekeepers, not coalitions of the willing because it's already difficult enough to get UN data about coalitions of the willing who get no data whatsoever. And there seems to be, so I concluded they keep the peace, um, and there's sort of uh, plenty of other work by Paige Fortner and, and collaborators um, that, there is, um, that they do keep the peace, so this is very good news. Um, Mike Broschka and uh, Peter Wallenstein, other people who work much more on arms, they sort of find that they make arms embargoes more effective. So again, good news. But then you've got to ask yourself immediately, when I say UN peacekeeping keep the peace, isn't there an endogeneity problem? Maybe all these peacekeepers are being sent to situations that are easier to keep, because individual countries make contributions. Yeah? So if you're the Pakistani or Bangladeshi government and you send quite a lot of peacekeepers out because you get a thousand US dollars per person per month, so it's quite a good income, um, you get from them, you want the income, but you don't want the body bags coming back. So you want to send these people to East Timor. You don't want to send them to the Congo or, or dangerous, more dangerous places. It seems, though, from what um, Nick um, Sambanis at Yale and also Paige Fortner have sort of independently found, that it's very difficult to predict where these peacekeepers are being sent. Um, or Paige Fortner says, almost more likely to the more difficult places. So I don't think that this endogeneity is a big problem. Okay, my fourth one is arms controls. So very unfortunately, um, the UN arms trade treaty negotiations broken down in July. There wasn't a resolution. It's going to sort of start up again. 
the, um, the US have got a, um, restrictions on um, arms sales, so do the Europeans. Um, it, um, there's less conflict in the world, as we've shown you plenty of graphs already. There are more arms uh, currently. And when I say more arms, what I'm really interested in with civil wars are small arms and light weapons, which is basically what you can carry as one person. Um, and the ammunition. I'm not interested in the sort of big um, defense sort of systems because they are not the things that give you Kalashnikovs are the sort of um, weapon of choice for, um, um, for rebel armies. So at the moment it's not permitted under American and European uh, rules to um, sell arms to countries <coughs> at conflict. So what typically happens is that they're sold to Kenya and they push them onto southern Sudan. Um, so they're illegally diverted to conflict countries. So basically, um, let me just sort of talk a moment about this. So um, whether any of these things stick, so the current European or um, American or possibly a UN uh, uh, trade um, treaty in arms depend very much on whether you regulate, whether you actually go and look that the Kenyans have used these weapons or whether they've been sold on to, um, to Sudan. Mike Roshka finds that embargoes are effective in reducing the flow of arms. You've got to be careful though when you're trying to assess these interventions because um, what the stated aim of the intervention is get rid of terrorist threats, um, um, you know, make the opposition win or whatever, um, might not be actually what the intention is. So the sort of stated aims and the outcomes might be quite, uh, might be quite different. So if measures of effectiveness and studying this is, is, is intrinsically difficult. So what I've already said is that these restrictions have, the restrictions have to be monitored. And to just give you an idea, the uh, global trade to, um, um, to poor countries in these um, small arms and light weapons is about 40 billion um, US dollars. And the US trade is about half of it. And the US has got what is widely regarded amongst the experts um, as the most effective program to monitor this. So actually to send people out and check where these weapons ended up. Um, it's very difficult to get data on this, but there was some congressional sort of requests for information. Uh, it's about the, the personnel costs are about three million. So that shows you there is a huge scope to really um, beef this up. So I hope you know this monitoring is going to be beefed up um, with a new UN arms treaty. So let me just conclude with um, some points of discussion. I'd love to hear your um, views on. So my view is very much from this sort of top-down. What can we do with interventions top-down? And it's very much from the outside view. Obviously, this is only one, you know, two ways of, of, of looking at this. And how could we combine this? Because changing countries would only ever come from within. Um, but how can we sort of help with outside interventions to achieve this? Um, if you're familiar with Ashimov Lewis and uh, Robinson's new book on um, why nations fail, um, are civil wars critical junctures? 
maybe we should just accept these happen. If you sort of if you believe in Tilly, this is what 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 made Europe what it is. So these wars sort of establish national boundaries, identities, etc. And this is just fine. And maybe we should just sort of let them fight it out um, and let it burn out, and then sort of um, have a new beginning in 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 these countries' respective histories. Um, how can you say so if you believe in the sort of Ashmore Robinson world of uh, inclusive institutions is what makes nations work? Um, so how do you build these inclusive institutions? One of the things that the UN always does is sort of like have elections. You know, two years it takes about two years to organise national elections, and we know how to do this, and we do this in all these sort of quite dangerous places. Um, but of course, elections are not democracy part of democracy, but what you really need is checks and balances. You need accountability. Um, why do these countries not work for pe poor people? Why is there no public service delivery for most of these poor people in, in these countries? It's because they don't have mechanisms to hold their, country, uh, their um, governments to account. So I think we need to sort of think much more about the institutional uh, build-up after, um, after civil wars. So then, um, as Monica said, countries that are dependent on natural resources are much, much more likely to have a civil war. This might be, as she said, for all sorts of different reasons. It could be for finance. Yeah, so it's the alluvial diamonds you, you take. It could be because these countries are dysfunctional. Michael Ross's book, um, sort of um, oil hinders democracy. Um, so there are different reasons why this or why this might be the case. Also, the income comes out of the ground. You don't need the improve, you know, you don't need to tax your population. So no taxation without representation. So this sort of whole, um, you know, this sort of link to accountability is sort of much more missing in these countries. Africa, because it had had so much conflict, is underprospected. Is what I believe. At the moment, the um, World Bank thinks in its study on where's the wealth of nations that Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, has got about one-fifth of the natural subsoil assets um, that the OECD has. That cannot be right, even if uh, Africa's been unlucky in this sort of um, distribution of natural resources, um, there must be more. Um, we know what's under Norway. Every square meter of Norway is pro probably being surveyed. Yeah? We don't know really what's in Tanzania. Well, we do know now they've just found gas. Mozambique's found gas. Uh, Uganda's got oil. Um, Ghana's got oil. So there's going to be many more countries that are going to sort of discover this, and that worries me for the reasons we've sort of um, developed. So um, there will be more exploration, more exploitation. So what about the existing initiatives, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, and the National Resource, um, Natural Resource Charter led by Paul Colley and Tony Venables uh, here in Oxford? Can we use these two boards of all Thank you. What I decided to do is to exploit this opportunity rather shamelessly to talk about my new book. Strategy. What I should do is have a toll-free number you can call for <laughs> your exit strategies and state building. But I hasten to add this isn't entirely for self-interested reasons. I think it relates very much to the last of the three questions <coughs> that have been put to this panel, 
what international and national policy responses are likely to be most and least effective in settling civil conflicts. Now, given that a large enough, and there's some dispute about the numbers, but a large enough number of violent conflicts reignite within five to ten years of the cessation of hostilities of a negotiated settlement, um, it's extremely important, arguably, to understand how third parties, the international community, can scale down and engage uh, in a manner, when they have engaged, that allows for the maintenance of peace in the aftermath of, of their engagement, in those cases, of course, where there has been a peace. It's quite conceivable that even with international intervention, peace has been elusive and third parties have had to conclude that they cannot be effective and will withdraw in the face of very difficult circumstances. But I think this is a very important question, not just because I was able to convince the publisher to publish a book on the, on the topic, but when you think about it, all peace operations are conceived with, with exit in mind. I mean, there's no peace operation that is expected to be designed, conceived and designed to be of indefinite duration, even though in actual fact, a number of them have been. When you think about Cyprus, Kashmir, um, Golan Heights, but uh, it certainly hasn't been the intention, and indeed, in some cases, um, Cyprus most notably, there's quite a lot of debate about the value of a continued international uh, presence. Now, there's been a lot of analysis devoted to international efforts to stabilize peace and rebuild societies in the aftermath of conflict. There have been dozens of books, scores of articles. We've all written about this um, in the past 10 years. But surprisingly, there's been very little attention given to the end game of these operations. Now, I won't say that the topics received no attention at all. Indeed, in an extraordinary day-long debate the uh, UN Security Council had in 2001, they discussed um, exit strategies in relation to peace operations. But I think it's fair to say that there's been a tendency, at least among analysts, to view talk about exit strategies as somehow delusory, um, to view planning for exit as misguided. Now, why is that? It's largely because no one can foresee the circumstances that will obtain and the course adjustments that are going to be necessary as a result once a peace or state building operation has been launched. And for that reason, no one can plan in any detailed way for an exit. I think that's quite fair, but this book is premised on a very different understanding. It recognizes that exit planning, like, like state building, like peace operations, is to a large degree an art, not a, not a science. Contingency of all kinds is a, a big factor. But that doesn't mean that exits must be entirely hostage to fortune. That, in other words, that more informed planning for exit isn't possible. And this book, by looking at a large range of, a uh, wide range of peace and state building, experiences both historically and contemporarily, attempts to draw lessons that have relevance to the design and implementation of 
exit strategies. I should say that this is really work of comparative case study analysis, and um, it's not a large-end study. Um, although we did something that was, I think, a little unusual. And for one thing, very upfront about the fact that with case selection, um, there aren't representative cases uh, as far as the analysis in this book is concerned because there are too many circumstances that are unique to each case. That doesn't mean that one can't make any um, generalizations, and I'm going to be talking about a few of these in just, uh, just a moment, but one does have to be careful about attempts to overgeneralize on the basis of, of these cases. Um, we often say, you know, well, um, forewarned is forearmed, and forewarning, a form of forewarning is, is, is knowledge, but knowledge can be a very dangerous thing, and anybody who's worked in the field has spent any time with people in, say, the, the UN, it's um, both a blessing and a curse to, in a way, have um, prior knowledge. But often, I mean, what happens with those who have none is, of course, they have very little basis on which to make judgments. And, and those who have some or a lot are sometimes bringing to bear on the experience at hand uh, the very same lessons that they drew from very different sets of circumstances. Um, in previous missions, and we saw this actually quite graphically, I think, for those who transited from Kosovo to East Timor. And you had very different populations, very different dispositions on the part of the population, and that created real difficulties for relations between the UN community and Timor um, as, a, as a result. Um, anyway, I can talk about um, that, but I just mentioned what, what we did is we looked at four families of experiences, and this was a group of about 15 scholars and practitioners, four families' experiences where state building has been a significant, state building broadly conceived, a significant component of uh, international led state building, of the, of the international presence. And because it's often invoked but never studied, we included among them colonial administrations. So we looked at withdrawal from colonial administrations, peace operations, complex peace operations, that is. Um, um, uh, international territorial administrations, which some treat as a subset of these operations, but we treat it as a small family, but a family onto its own, and then transformative military occupations, uh, where there is an attempt to actually transform the nature of the political um, regime system, uh, perhaps even more broadly, um, the uh, economic system and society. And then within that broad view we took, we looked at in, in depth at a number of cases beneath each each one. So um, you know, th there are a number of cases that are excluded just because of, of uh, limitations and how much we could study. But I, I think it's fair to say that <coughs> on the basis of the cases that we have looked at, um, some reasonable conclusions can be drawn. And in any event, I think it's instructive for anybody either from an academic standpoint or from a, a policy standpoint who might have an interest in questions relating to the maintenance of peace, uh, achieving a sustainable peace, consolidated peace. All right, so what are some of the lessons for exit strategizing that the book identifies that are, are relevant to this panel discussion? Well, first, 
exit is a process, not an event. And we talked just, I could talk just now about elections being central um, to the UN and general international model for uh, post-conflict state building. Marina Holloway wrote a very good piece, I think, on this, um, which she uh, um, captured um, particular elements of that model, including elections. And as she said, it, they often take place within a, um, within a period of about two years. But there was actually a tendency for a while to treat elections as the culminating point of international involvement in a, in a civil conflict. And that was the case, for instance, with respect to Angola, where UN organized elections in 92, 1992 represented the high watermark for UN involvement in that war-torn state. But the elections actually prompted the renewal of conflict in Angola when one party to the conflict, Jonas Savimbi, uh, refused to accept the outcome and instead picked up arms again and the war started over. Now, elections can have a useful role to play in exit strategies. One thing, they, they help us to identify legitimate interlocutors, but they shouldn't represent the culmination of international involvement if, again, the interest is in achieving a sustainable peace as the ultimate objective. But I think the good news is that governments and inter intergovernmental organizations engaged in state building have generally learned that lesson. So we don't see any longer. We see elections, certainly. And I think indeed Marina's quite right. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a, a, a limit to how long we can withhold. Unlike um, Germany after Second World War, which went for many, many years before a first election was Hell, we can't do that anymore because of the importance of the norm of self-determination. Um, it's, it's important to begin to devolve some authority, um, at least within these situations where there's um, a, a heavy international presence. But the, um, the idea that exit is a process has a further implication, which is that exit strategies are, to a large degree, path-dependent. In other words, a good exit strategy depends on good entrance and intermediate strategies. Now, if there have been major deficiencies in either the design or the execution of an operation, of a, of a peace and state building operation, an exit strategy will be unable to compensate for the deficiencies easily, if at all. And that's, I would argue, one of the problems with Afghanistan today. The coalition's exit strategy is predicated on the achievement of a number of objectives, the defeat of the Taliban, the establishment of a legitimate Afghan government, and economic regeneration corresponds to the, uh, we don't have any longer slide, but um, in terms of security and at least public service delivery that Anka, Anka laid out. But these objectives have proved to be pretty elusive, um, really from the start of the intervention. An exit strategy in relation to a poorly designed or executed state building operation is often largely about damage limitation and minimizing reputational costs. And I think that's what we're seeing in the case of Afghanistan, although of course that's not going to be reflected in any official pronouncements. You're not going to hear the Obama administration telling us that that's what they're doing as they scale down. Okay, so that's one lesson. The second lesson is that effective exit planning requires continual re-evaluation 
of goals and assessment of progress towards them. Do the original objectives still support the broad strategic goals of the mission? Have new or unanticipated threats or impediments to a stable peace emerged? For instance, new external security threats or tensions within the population that weren't there at the outset. Um, new threats and, or impediments that require the articulation of new or altered objectives. Has available implementing capacity nationally, internationally changed? And what implications does that have for meeting and operations objectives and achieving a sustainable exit? So as I said, a clear roadmap to uh, an exit at the start of an operation isn't feasible because circumstances will evolve. Um, but it, it is important precisely for that reason to be rethinking the exit strategy continually. Now one problem with assessing progress is that there are no hard measures or indicators of consolidated peace. In contrast, say, to the indicators of a sound economy or a healthy population. We know when a population's been immunized against disease. We don't know when a population's been immunized against violent conflict. The ultimate test of a sustainable peace necessarily comes after the fact. That is, only when external parties have drawn down significantly or exited, and the state um, society in question is put to the ultimate test of being able to maintain uh, the peace itself. When I say by itself, I don't mean entirely self-reliant. We're in a world of, of um, interconnectedness, and there are all kinds of supports that may continue long after a formal exit, uh, withdrawal, scale down, and, and withdrawal. But the heavy lifting in this regard you know, has to be done by the state and the society itself. Uh, the specific criteria for measuring a consolidated peace is go are going to vary from, from one situation to another. There's no standard checklist that's applicable to all situations, and that's what makes it so difficult to be able to judge whether, um, to what extent, a piece is sustainable. I mean, what we need very often, and this is where what we do really requires, I think, the insights of anthropologists in some respects more than it does, or ethnographers, and it does um, international relations experts, we need deep knowledge about the conflict dynamics within a particular country in order to be able to make sound judgments about the sustainability of, of the peace. But one thing that's absolutely critical is that we have to avoid politicization of these judgments. And that happens all too frequently because uh, fundamentally all of this is taking place within the arena of politics. Politics at home, politics internationally, politics in the country itself. And, and that can easily contaminate um, assessments consciously or, or otherwise. And we see this um, going back to the Vietnam War and reporting back from Vietnam about the situation on the ground and politicians not liking what they were hearing and so wanting the data in effect to be massaged. Uh, so they would be getting the kind of results that they could then report to uh, a public whose support was actually critical to being able to continue with that with that effort. Okay, so that's the second lesson: continual reevaluation, the need for it of goals and and, and uh, assessment of progress towards them. Third lesson, and there are only four. So don't uh, 
have to sit here too long. Third lesson is that an exit shouldn't mark the end of all international involvement. And that's consistent with what I said earlier, that an exit is a process, not an event. Um, and consistent with that idea is that there will often be the need for further international engagement long after the formal military and civilian operations organizations have departed. Now, this also is a lesson that international actors appear to be learning. There appears to be growing awareness of, of the importance of systematic follow-on measures that can and should be taken in the uh, wake of exit to reinforce post-conflict state-building achievements, and peace in particular, um, or in the event of a failure to complete a mandate, to mitigate the effects of adverse developments. That's also important because, as I said, we're not always going to succeed. And when we don't succeed, we want at least to be able to think, you know, to think about being able to take measures that will sort of contain the worst effects of the situation. Now, a number of operations have seen the adoption of these, these follow-on measures. Sierra Leone and East Timor were both home to major UN post-conflict state-building operations that, upon termination, were followed by successor UN missions. In the case of Sierra Leone, arguably that mission, that follow-on mission, played a critical role uh, in peace consolidation. In the case of East Timor, the mission didn't protect, pre prevent the outbreak of renewed fighting in 2006, but arguably it facilitated the rapid deployment of additional peacekeepers to Timor when conflict reignited. Now, recognition of the need for systematic follow-on measures is also reflected in the UN Peacebuilding Commission, which was established in 2005, and its associated bodies, the Peacebuilding Fund and the Peacebuilding Support Office. Um, although it's fair to say, I think, putting it rather diplomatically, that um, the uh, value added of the PDC hasn't yet been fully realized. Um, but I, 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 I mean, one thing I think we can say, the point in part of establishing the PDC was to help maintain attention on conflict situations when um, the, 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 the conflict had been brought to a close and attention tended, international attention, to move on naturally to other crisis situations. And so uh, in now the six countries, on the PBC's agenda, there is a concerted effort to maintain a focus and to help ensure that if, uh, well, first of all, to nurture that peace, um, that fragile peace, and help to ensure that if there is um, a, a dangerous situation that develops, there'll be um, a rapid response. And, and there is anecdotal evidence to suggest that member states who are serving on the commission have helped, in the case of Sierra Leone, I can think of, for instance, to ensure timely delivery of, of um, aid at a time um, when, in, in retrospect, it seems that it, it was um, critical to helping to shore up uh, the peace in that country. Uh, so it's helped to maintain international uh, involvement on countries that would otherwise perhaps have fallen off the agenda. Now, the, the, um, the fourth lesson is, and I alluded to this earlier, that exit is political. Um, since peace building and state building are fundamentally political processes, the timing 
and nature of exit strategies are inevitably influenced by political factors. Political factors which often have little to do with uh, progress on the ground. So in some cases, local pressures for more rapid transfer of authority to national actors have resulted in a, a much more accelerated transition uh, for which the country, in effect, wasn't adequately equipped. Both Timor and Iraq, for instance, growing frustration and impatience with the international authorities led to uh, a much more highly compressed process of political transition. Transition. In other cases, there have been pressures from the troop-contributing countries for burden release, relief that's resulted in a premature uh, withdrawal of forces um, that arguably compromise the fragile peace. So in Sierra Leone, for, for instance, budgetary pressures clearly played a decisive role in establishing Nigeria's timetable for exit when ECOWAS was keeping the peace there. Uh, and similarly, um, in East Timor, uh, one of the um, um, Security Council uh, members um, um, was very concerned to scale down that mission uh, in the face of very explicit appeals from the UN Secretary General um, to maintain um, not existing levels, but to, to, to scale down in a much more graduated way. And those appeals, frankly, fell on deaf ears. The decision, in the end, lies with the Security Council. And, um, and the renewal at that level was not, um, was not accepted. So there's not much really that can be done in such a situation, uh, but we, as I said, need to be aware that exit strategies like state building more generally are much more than technical administrative challenges. They are, as I said, fundamentally um, political in nature. And so uh, we, we can't lose sight of, of the, uh, the, the influence of political factors. Anyway, these are just a few of, of the lessons that I drew from the studies of my colleagues who contributed to uh, this volume. But just to reiterate what I said at the outset, um, good exit strategies are critical to the, the consolidation of peace, and we often pay the price for failing to think about and plan appropriately for transition and exit. I suppose the last thing I should say, of course, is buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.